Okay, well, it's good to see everybody. Um, my name is Danny. I'm one of the members on staff here and uh, officially deemed the crying one. Um, today, I promise that I'm not going to be crying, but I will be here to preach the word. Uh, and for those of you who are just joining us, um, we've been, we just recently started in the new year going through the Gospel of Mark. And this is a series that we'll be doing every single Sunday up leading until Easter. Uh, we'll be even on. We'll have a Good Friday service before Easter as well. We'll be reading some passages through Mark and uh, celebrating the resurrection, uh, which seems far away, but it's actually not too far away. Uh, we're definitely time is moving quickly. Uh, yeah. So today we're going to continue on this series in Mark. And so uh, before I go into it, I'd like to first just read the passage together. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, please open up into Mark chapter four. So we're still early on in the book. And today we're going to be reading from Mark chapter 4, starting from the very beginning in verse 1. I'll give you all a second to get there. And we'll read this together from Mark chapter 4, starting from verse 1. Again he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell along rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that... They may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold. And sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit's hand to be at work in this place this morning in our hearts. We pray for your mercy to be present. We pray that you would open up our ears and soften our hearts to be recipients of your word and that we would be a people who bear fruit all for your glory. We pray that we commit, we commit this time to you. We commit our lives to you and to one another, and we pray that you would continue to increase our love for Christ and for neighbor as we worship. 
And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so a little bit about myself. In, when I was in college, I was a communication major. Any comm majors in the house? Yeah. Like three. <laughs> I quickly realized why I sh- there aren't many communication majors based upon how many people didn't care about hiring me. Um, anyways, uh, <laughs> anyways, I was a communication major, and one of the things, uh, so a lot of people are like, okay, so what did you study? Like, what, what is that about? And at my school, there was a very wide range of what you could. The, the degree was extremely big, and there was um, a lot of different concentrations. And what I did a lot was piece of, or I was taught to critically examine and pick apart media as to, and how media either negatively or positively affects society. And uh, a, a particular group was children. And so one study that we did was we, uh, and that I read a lot, about a lot and had many classes on and, and different, uh, wrote a lot of papers on was how, uh, this is pretty popular, some of you may have heard it, it's on the news once in a while, how children are able to recognize logos or brands and also pair that to the corresponding company and know what they do. So we would show children uh, uh, the, I don't know, Pepsi logo, and very quickly, it was both in the United States and abroad, internationally, children were able to say, oh, that's Pepsi. They make soda or pop or cola or whatever you want to call it. And a lot of these studies ended up showing that uh, many children can actually do this before they can even read. And so we've been thinking, we've been, I had spent a lot of time at, uh, in college like studying what this does and the importance of it, what we can learn from media. And it, it led me to thinking how that the power of images and how they affect our understanding of things is actually very present in Christianity, in the church as well. So one example, uh, if you were, I know, well, actually many of you weren't with us at Christmas, but for those of you who were, uh, Pastor Eugene preached a sermon and he showed a, a, a really funny um, clip on Christmas and how a lot of it is misunderstood because of the imagery, right? I googled uh, wise men, and if you were to google that and go to Google Images and just scroll, scroll, scroll as fast as you could, hundreds and, or thousands upon thousands of images show the wise men and there are always three of them. But the Bible never says that there was three wise men. That's just one example. Another example that I was thinking of is Noah's Ark. I Google image searched Noah's Ark, and this is what I, a lot of what I got. <laughs> this is one picture. Another. I thoroughly enjoy the rhino on the right side. Uh, and this is another one. So this is a lot. So there are some serious paintings of Noah's Ark, but this is, you can go home and do it yourself. Just Google images Noah's Ark, press enter, and this is a lot of what comes out. Now, if you stop and think about it, okay, I'm, it's not my seminary degree that taught me this, but Noah's Ark isn't much of a children's story, is it? But if you think about it, they're always in children's Bibles, always taught in Sunday school and children's ministry. A lot of churches in their nurseries have Noah's Ark murals painted on their walls. And, and I get it, it's about animals and it's an easy way to, you know, sh- teach children. But let me read a passage, just a few really quick verses from, from Noah's Ark. In Genesis 6, it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had man ma- made man on earth and grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. And it's kind of funny. I was picturing maybe if, when I have kids... If my, if my daughter asked me, Daddy, can you tell me a bedtime story? I'm like, sure, honey. 
men were so evil that God wanted to wipe them all. Like, it, it doesn't really make sense. But, and so images, they can oftentimes just kind of stick with us, right? And a lot of times when it comes to biblical things, if, if we're used to it, I find that if we don't have that critical mind, that's something that I was taught so much in college, like they were just pounding us with, no matter how well you know something, no matter how many times you've heard it, seen it, think critically. And this is one of the privileges I think that is so awesome of the joy that we have of being able to gather together and worship on Sundays and have the scripture in hand. Because we can look at the Bible and pick it apart. And the reason why I bring this up is because the passage that we just read today Although probably not as popular as Noah's Ark or, uh, or the nativity scene or the Christmas story, um, it's, it's pretty well known. And before we do go ahead and pick it apart, uh, I do want to maybe debunk a few misconceptions about it. Firstly, uh, in the heading of your Bibles, probably most, if not all, will say, will title it the parable of the sower. That can be slightly misleading because the parable really doesn't focus on the sower. The, the main gist of it and the, the focus is actually on the seed, which is the word of God, and especially the soils, right? The four different types of soils. So I would argue that it would might maybe more appropriately be called the parable of the seed and the soils. And if we are looking at a parable, what, are, what is a parable? Why did Jesus talk in this way? Why not just be straightforward and say, don't lie, instead of saying, once there was a boy who, you know... Let me share, um, one of the biggest misconceptions of, of parables, I believe, is that a lot of times we equate them with the modern day sermon illustration, right? A pastor will come up and share and say, God wants us to give generously. And then give an illustration that is modern day, that relates to the audience and to the listener, so that they will be able to better understand, oh, that is a good story that helps me understand I should give generously. The thing is, Jesus never used parables for that purpose. It wasn't to, in, to bring enlightenment to his points or to help people understand better. Two, really quickly, two major functions of parables. The first and foremost was actually not to enlighten, but to exhort. So Jesus would share his parable and expect a response from the hearer in terms of action, in terms of transformation and life change. It wasn't so that they would understand him. One professor at Gordon-Conwell, uh, at the seminary that um, the staff all attended, he explains that, you know, there are biblical passages where, in this one, where people say, oh, I don't, what are you talking about? I don't really understand. And others. But the majority of the time, ancient people, when a rabbi would speak in parables, they weren't confused. It wasn't always like, oh, you know, there was a flower and the sun gave it and it grew. And it, everyone wasn't always like, okay, so is the flower me or is it God? Like, that, that wasn't the case. Oftentimes they understood so the problem, when it, or the, the, the important detail to recognize when it came to the preaching of parables wasn't whether people understood or not, but whether people obeyed or not. Whether it produced life transformation, obedience, shift in not only view and understanding mentally, but lifestyle. The second purpose of the parables was that it had a discriminating function. And what I mean by that is that it would... Based upon the reaction of the hearer, it would separate them. And so some scholars say that Jesus actually uses parables in a judge, uh, as a form of judgment. Not like judge, like, oh, like judge. But in the sense that you're able to separate those who are faithful and those who had faith versus those who didn't. We see it in our passage, right? In Mark chapter 4, 11, 
This is from uh, the, the book of Isaiah. Jesus is talking about Isaiah's prophecy. And he says in verse 12, So that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. In Isaiah 6, where this, past, or when this uh, reference comes from, Isaiah is given a word from God and told to prophesy over the people. And he is told that his ministry will actually end up hardening the hearts of the people, that they won't repent, that they won't turn back to God. And it's clear that when, whether it be figuratively seed, but when the word of God is preached, that it is received differently based upon the heart of the listener. And we see that in this passage. So we can see that very clearly and we'll walk through it in the four different types of soil that Jesus talks about. And we're starting from verse 14 where he starts explaining himself, right? Verse 14, the sower sows the word. So okay, that's clear. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes it away. And so basically he's saying there's those who, when the word is given, that their hearts are hardened and it falls upon empty ears and it has no effect. The second... The ones on the rocky ground, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves and endure for a while. Then when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Well, something uh, interesting to highlight in, out of this, the rocky soil, is actually that they don't just receive it. It's not, oh, they just get it. But Jesus says they Im- receive it immediately and with joy. Isn't that interesting? And I'm going to go into that a little bit later, how often t- it's not uncommon for people to receive the word of God joyfully, but how enduring of the word and faithfulness is the hard part. And so they receive it with joy, but what's the problem? They have no root and they endure for a while. Then when difficulties, when tribulation, persecution occurs, they fall away. The phrase endure for a while, you can actually translate that temporarily. So there are those who receive the word joyfully and immediately, but it's a temporary, fleeting, emotional acceptance or receiving. And the third, those that are sown among thorns, they hear the word, but the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches and desires enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. In verse 19, um, there's really vivid uh, Greek language that I want to change a little bit that might help us to understand it in the English better. So I would rather read it as, those who hear the word, but the worries of the world and the deception of riches and the lusts for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Now, I don't want to spin off into like a sermon on money because it's not. And we're not going to ask you, say, oh, you don't give enough, none of that. But we do here at Cornerstone talk a lot about how Jesus talks about money more than anything. And I think this passage just hi- highlights that more. That it wasn't just about getting people to give, but it was the warning of how much greed can have power over us. So much so, that out of the only four types of soil, he mentions this one. That the worries of the world and that the rich- and riches can be deceiving, that there is deception, and that desires for worldly things don't just stop at desire, but move over into lust. That we lust after it. And the reason why this is so serious, he says, is because it chokes the word out of your life. And the reason why I think that's the case is because when we become so consumeristic or or enamored by worldly things, that really that becomes our treasure. And so the word has no room to breathe. So this is very particular in how Jesus brings this up. 
Now, excuse me. Um, one thing that I would be very hesitant and I would ask you all not to do is to read, or read the passage, hear me talk about it, and to think, okay, so if Jesus is giving these four types of soil, so those three and then the one that bore fruit, which one am I? So I accepted the word, I, you know, but then when you know, difficult things did come in my life, I stopped going to church for a while, so I must be really rocky inside. Or hopefully even worse is judging other people. That kid, he used to go to youth group with me, but now all he does is smoke pot. Birds came up and ate that word in his life. Like, that, this is not the point of this passage, okay? So if you get, I hope you do get something out of it, but if you don't get something wrong out of it, it would, I would urge to not think that way. The purpose of this parable isn't for Jesus to go around and say, figure out who you are, people, and you better do something about it because you're like the birds that came and ate up because Satan's going to snatch the word away from you. It's not about pairing ourselves. The point of this teaching, and I'm going to read this just so that I get every word correctly. The point of this teaching is to exhort the children of God to faithful and enduring acceptance of the word and Jesus' kingship over your life, which leads to God-glorifying fruit. So this parable is a call to endure, to be faithful, and what I'm going to be talking about later, to seek Christ and bear fruit. Let your faithfulness be what glorifies God out of the crop that it produces. Our world is oftentimes very complicated and complex, but sometimes it can be pretty black and white, right? And I think that this passage kind of highlights it because as Mark talks about this parable, he, he heightens this difference between faith versus no faith, as you can see in the parable. And then this parable, if you're studying Mark, I hope you guys are reading and studying on your own and not just with us on Sundays, but there's this hinge from this passage that immediately after he starts bringing up passage after passage after passage after passage that highlights those with faith and those without. If you care, you don't, you don't have to write this down, but if you want to, I'm just going to blow through these. Immediately after in Mark 5, 17, Jesus casts demons out and they, they go into the pigs and they fall off the cliff. And instead of that producing faith, the people actually get afraid and ask him to leave. So no faith. Few verses, literally a few verses later, there's the bleeding woman who has so much faith that if she just touches Jesus' cloak, that she'll be healed, and she does. Mark 5.34. Six verses later, Mark 5.40, people laugh at Jesus because they don't have faith when he says that the little girl is not dead, but indeed sleeping, and he heals her. Jesus is then rejected at his hometown in the next chapter. The next chapter, there's the faith of the Syrophoenician woman. And after that, the Pharisees come into play and they demand a sign because they lack faith. And, and Mark goes on and on and on and on and on, highlighting this importance, the need for enduring faithfulness. And the thing is that one thing that it heightens, and especially what I think that uh, the rocky soil, when he says that it's received with joy, shows us, and then you see Mark highlighting it over and over, is that reception and even joyful reception of the word is in fact easy and common, but enduring faithfulness is hard. The sower always sows the seed in the word of God, and God is preaching his word, and the Holy Spirit is sowing always for the same purpose, to produce a crop. The difference is whether the heart that receives it is healthy enough to produce. And so I ask all of us, Regardless of whether what state of our faith or what part of our journey that we're on or how we're feeling or 
you know, maybe faith is difficult for you. Maybe you're, you doubt or you're skeptical in belief in things that are unseen. Or maybe life has just gotten so difficult lately or to this point. Hardships in, fa- in life, uh, family or loved ones passing away, job issues, whatever. That you just can't believe in a God who would let that kind of stuff happen to you. Or probably the majority of us aren't going through any traumatic experiences, but we're just apathetic because we try to love God, but nothing happens and changes in my life because I still feel the same. I don't get anything out of church or, or the different church uh, activities that I attend. The passion just seems to quickly fade away, right, for, for many of us. Um, many of you know that I am very enthusiastic about fitness and, and, and sports and athleticism, and, and in particular CrossFit. Um, for those, you may or may not be familiar with it, and I'm not going to go into it, but uh, CrossFit, like, or what I do to exercise, what I love about it is that they, they preach this philosophy of working extremely hard, taking joy in that, and then living a better life as a result of it. And so I love it, because sometimes I'm literally running to the bathroom, puking my brains out during a workout, running back out and being happy, right? Like, we, we hate that, right? But I love it because it feels good. It makes me feel like I'm living a more holistic and healthier life. Um, the thing is, okay, puking sounds weird, right? But anyways, you know, it, it, I like it. Uh, some of you may be able to relate, right? When P90X and Insanity and all that stuff came out and maybe you were part of an athletic team and, you know, you go through their conditioning programs and you're all about it. And many of you can relate that exercise doesn't only enhance the, your physicality but bleeds over into a wholeness of well-being, right? That you are able to stay awake at work uh, better. You don't need coffee or, uh, you know... There's oftentimes the, the testimonial, right, on, on the infomercials that, like, they show the, like, before picture where they're, like, 50 pounds heavier. Like, I gained 50 pounds, but then a friend told me about P90X, and now I'm healthy. I lost 30 pounds, and I play ball with my kids. And there's the after picture, you know? Uh, the thing is, when, when P90X and all these programs came out, uh, YouTube and the Internet and infomercials were just littered with testimonies, right? And that was a good marketing strategy because... All of America, and I don't know if this went globally, but if it did, at least all of America was so excited that there was actually some dude, Tony Horton, who came out with a program that works. That all these testimonies of these people's lives proved it. That this is actually works. There's all these diets, there's all these exercise programs, they're all like, they don't work, but P90X does. And what I, when I stopped to think about it, I felt a little bit jealous because I thought, man, I could have easily made a video and made millions of dollars, but that dude is a genius because he beat everybody to the punch. Because the thing is, what is surprising about P90X working? You eat well, you exercise hard, and you don't lose weight, and you don't get healthy? Of course you would. For 90 days straight, you don't rest, but you work out, and you can't eat hamburgers, and you only eat celery. And who wouldn't lose weight at that point? So what is this that's so surprising about this thing that he's came up, come up with? Nothing. And the reason why I use this example, maybe, I hope, maybe fitness in this example doesn't relate to you, but for me, it's like a perfect example. Because like the passage says, there are those who receive with excitement and there are different levels, right? 
And oftentimes when a new program or new fad comes out, or whether it's fitness or not, fashion, whatever, we are happy to accept it. We get friends and say, hey, let's do P90X together. And that lasts like two weeks. So it shows that really receiving of things, excitement inside, and the commitments or making those steps to, to change is easy. But to endure is not. To get through the program is not. To have that after picture takes a lot of work. And the thing is, so many of us say, God isn't present in my life. So many of us say that I've done all the things and, and I feel the same, or that Christianity isn't worth it, or that it's, or I'm apathetic because I, if I don't feel anything, what's the difference? Or I pray so hard and God doesn't listen. God's not there. And what I would challenge us and ask and respectfully, is it that God isn't there or that we're not there? I think a lot of times, and I'll say this of myself first and foremost, that my life becomes central and when everything around it doesn't revolve and wrap itself on my life, whether it be opinions or situations, circumstances, relationships, money, whatever, I get upset, right? When I'm arguing with a friend, like, or my parents, or whoever, or when some guy cuts me off on the road and I get angry, my life seems to be central, and whatever revolves around it must wrap itself, otherwise it produces some sort of negative emotion. But I wonder if we need this important shift of, and transformation of view and perspective and of life and commitment that God and the word is central and my life is ought to be wrapped around that and not the other way around. That we su- become a people in a church that submit ourselves before the word of God and regardless of what difficulties go on in our life that we're able to say yes and amen. And I think that is exactly the hard part but this is the call that Christ gives to faithful endurance from his people. The thing is and and. One of the best parts about our faith, and I hope I'm not coming off this way, is that it's not all about our work, is it? If I were to say, you guys need to do a better job because that's going to make you a better Christian, you all wouldn't believe me, and I hope you wouldn't, because I would be preaching a works righteousness, and it would just not be what we're about. But our faith does have this, sometimes hard to explain, but this beautiful um, harmony of the Spirit's working and power in our lives on one hand, and the efforts and the disciplines and the exercising of faith on the other hand, and there has to be this joining of it. We can't just say, God, pray, like, make me a better Christian. God, I mean, help my mom. God, do this and this and that for me, and then go home and watch TV. There's a disconnect there, right? And the best part is that, and that what I want to drive home is that nothing will produce our efforts. And I don't want to be cliche, but if you get one practical thing out of this, in my application point today, and it's not cliche, it's not Sunday school, it's simply what I believe to be one of the most important things that we can challenge each other to do is commitment to the word and commitment to prayer. And I believe, I will speak for all of us, maybe if you're not this person, you should come up and I'll apologize to you, but I believe that all of us struggle with that. That we are a people of the word, and yet we don't read it. We're people about loving God, but we don't speak to him. And I believe that we will only accomplish this when it is birthed out of a love and a joy for Jesus. 
One thing that I love about my Savior and what does make me cry, <laughs> I'm not going to cry now, don't worry, but what does make me cry is when I think that God, Jesus does not just demand perfection of sinners, but he's the God who became sin himself so that sinners could become perfect. That's awesome. That preachers, that it's not my call to just stand up here and say, you don't read your Bible enough so you're a sinner and go repent. But rather that God, and when you put your joy in Christ, that he produces a love in you that therefore leads to you having this deep commitment and hunger for the word where you're feasting on it. And that leads into this God-glorifying fruit, glorifying fruit in your life. The Apostle Paul, I'm going to go through this real verse that's, this is a very important verse in the scriptures. You should write this down. It's just justification, our doctrine of justification in a nutshell. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. So Christ was perfect. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And so I just phrase that slightly differently. That the people who... Um, that, uh, that Mark is writing about who bear 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold in, in verse 20 are the ones who are hearing and accepting the word. But those who are wrapping their lives around Christ, those who are seeking after him, longing for him, and then feasting on his word daily in commitment to the word and to prayer because of your love, because of your joy, because it is worth it, because it is better than the TV, because it is better than money and worldly things. And because it is worth putting your entire life on. Jesus did not just demand perfection of you and say that you're going to hell because you don't obey me. But the gospel is this amazing story of mercy, rich mercies and grace in which, again, he does not just demand perfection of sinners, but becomes sin himself so that sinners could become perfect, wrapped in his perfection. One thing that I would really like to see at Cornerstone, and this is a practical thing uh, in this new year, I mean, it's not a new year sermon, but we're still in January, it's still fresh, is for us together as a body to be renewing our spiritual disciplines because of our love for Christ. And I hope that as you do go out through this new year, that our prayers, I, I would like to shift them if you are praying this way, because I do that all the time. God, make me a better Christian, or God, help me to do QT more, to stop cursing, or to stop lying, or to stop sinning, and X, Y, Z. But I wonder what kind of fruit would be born in this church, and in your life, and in your communities, and workplaces, and schools, if our collective prayer that we're praying fervently daily would be, Lord, give me a deeper intimacy and love for your Son. And I hope that that can be our prayer together. And I hope that that can be the call and the anthem of this church and of this body. And I believe firmly with faith that when the word is preached and when the gospel takes root and when those who accept it and they bear fruit that this world starts transforming your life and the lives of those around you. And so let that be our prayer for deeper love for God which leads into a faithful, enduring commitment to him and to his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that uh, prayer just immediately now. Um, Lord, I pray on behalf of my brothers and sisters in this room for this church, for Cornerstone, uh, even beyond our walls and beyond our community. Lord, I pray for 
the universal church, the church with a capital C. I pray for your people all around the world, for the missionaries in, in, in different countries around the world that are scattered and for different house churches everywhere, Lord. I pray for your kingdom of believers. Lord, would it be our collective, unified, fervent, and passionate prayer to say, Lord, deepen our intimacy and our love for your Son. Father, this passage and this parable is sometimes hard to swallow because it's, it's true. There are, and we, we can even identify people. I know I'm saying that it's not the point of it, but it's true that we can. There are people where the, so, or the seed that is sown just falls away and is taken up or that's choked away or that withers away. And there's that reality, Lord, that when our hearts are in different places, So we pray in the only way that we can for the rich mercies of God and for the work of your Holy Spirit to be softening our hearts and softening the hearts of our loved ones and of our communities. And would your gospel sown in their lives bear fruit and not for us, not for ourselves, but for your glory. Lord, we thank you so much that you don't put an unbearable yoke on our backs We thank you that although perfection and holiness in your eyes is impossible for us, Lord, you made it possible because of the sending of your Son. We thank you for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and for his promise that he will come again. And we hold on to that truth tightly. And Father, I close by praying that you would just increase joy in this place, increase joy in our lives, increase joy in our... In, in our walks with you, increase joy in our, in our love for one another. And I pray that you, out of that joy, would birth a commitment and that we would be a body that is in love and, and just feasting on your word and communicating with you and giving glory to God, that you would bear fruit through Cornerstone Church. So Father, we love you and we commit our lives to you. We thank you for your patience and we ask that you continue to walk alongside of us, teaching us gently. And we pray that all of our hearts will just yearn after a God who is so perfect in that way and that you would be pleased and glorified in this world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.